Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Alberta IoT. A huge thank you to Brenda Beckendorf and her team for the work they're doing to establish Alberta as the worldwide center of excellence for the Internet of Things technology. Okay, before we go any further, IoT, you say? In an era of acronyms, it's never been easier to get lost in the weeds of jargon. Let's start with the basics. What is the Internet of Things? Well, IoT describes the network of physical objects, the things, that are embedded with sensors, software, and other technologies for the purpose of connecting and exchanging data with other devices and systems over the Internet. Thank you, Google, for that definition. Let's take it one step further. Think the smart thermostat in your home, the Apple Watch on your wrist, all the way to the remote sensors on a piece of equipment 100 miles from the nearest town. We are surrounded with sensors in all aspects of our life, and with the evolution of the Internet and our ability to bring all of those sensors together and then to process large amounts of data, the Internet of Things is being used to make our lives better, safer, make our companies more profitable, and the list continues. Alberta IoT was founded in 2017 by a group of passionate Albertans and has grown to over 175 member companies. These range from startups to established organizations who are pivoting and expanding into this exciting sector. At the core of the Alberta IoT approach is the ability for leaders to share a common voice and to support each other to grow as an entire sector. We are stronger together, and Alberta IoT has provided the platform and essentially the ability for these companies to come together to share that voice. From their fast track program, to their work with government, to helping increase visibility for local companies. They are at the intersection of this amazing growth opportunity. Join me as I chat with some of the zebras and soon-to-be unicorns in Alberta who are helping to put our province on the map as a global leader in IoT. To find out more about Alberta IoT and its member companies, as well as upcoming events, please visit their website at www.albertaiot.com. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Zane Velji. How are you doing, Zane? Mm. I am good. Thank you for having me on on this special occasion where we are all hungover from a federal election. Yes, and it's a couple. It's, our other one. it's a couple that yes, we're jumping right in headlong. So this is kind of a special episode of Collisions YYC where we're going to zero in a little bit on what's happening. And we're in Calgary. This is a Calgary focused podcast, but yes, we we don't live in a, we don't live in an island or live in a bubble by any stretch. And we've got our own election coming up on October 18, twenty twenty one. We just came off. What seems like an exercise in futility, maybe, happened on Monday as the federal election kind of wound down and we ended up in a very similar state, but that's my view. So very anxious. You are your partner VP strategy at Northweather, campaign strategist, board director, political commentator. Yes, I'm reading right off your LinkedIn profile and speaker who plays in this space significantly more than I do. So maybe give us a little bit of kind of, you know, your, your, the role you play in the world and then let's dive right into what's going on here, man. Like many people, I think politics, uh, the bug of politics caught me very early and it's kind of been with me since and rarely on a working in government sort of perspective, but always in a jumping in on campaigns, trying to help good people get elected, values aligned people get elected in in positions. So, uh, you know, manage the campaign for Mayor Nenshi in 2017, try to help uh, Rachel Notley with her re-election. Uh, in uh, 2019 and a bunch of other stuff in between um, in terms of political work. But really, my focus is how do you try to take politics, which uh, to many is a dirty word, uh, has been an increasingly more polarized space, and try to make it more accessible uh, for folks that may not see themselves in the politics of 2021 and, and beyond, uh, but but know that their voices are are needed in the mix because one of the things that we often forget is that politics leads to 
policy and the power that that comes with that to fundamentally at scale change people's lives and trajectories and improve circumstances for so many um, politics is the unlock to that. So it is the game that one needs to play in order to, to be able to have that scalable impact. I'm not saying it's the only way to have that scalable impact, but man, oh man, especially in this post pandemic time where it's revealed so many inequities and so many possibilities and, and frankly has, uh, for many underlined and highlighted the role of government. Uh, it is, it is once again, I think paramount to ensure that folks, uh, see themselves in politics, not just, uh, as voters, but perhaps hopefully as folks that are leading the charge for campaigns, if not on the ballot, uh, themselves. Oh, that's an interesting position. Would you say, obviously you live in this world much more, uh, the last 18 months, 20 months has really brought to the forefront how much impact on our daily lives, a policy decided by a government body yeah. can have. Yeah. Have you found that people, you said the dirty word concept and, you know, I've been just listening to a lot of the rhetoric that was coming out and a lot of the conversations happening. Do people feel that they just, there's no party for them? Do they feel like they want to get involved, but they've got no place? It just feels like in this polarized world that a lot of people maybe care, but aren't sure where to place that, place that energy. Well, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon because what we've seen in our modern politics uh, is two distinct things that are going on. And let me address the first one, then I'll get to the second one. The first one is, and this is a generalization, but perhaps is a model for people to kind of view um, their their um, their perhaps political uh, homelessness in a certain way. Hmm. And what's going on is you have seen primarily developed out of Europe, but certainly imported to our shores, that political parties are starting to court a smaller and smaller base. You know, when we look at the bell curve of politics, you know, most of the people, the voting public are in the middle. So so the general philosophy is, used to be, why not run to the middle where most of the voters are, and then we'll all fight to get that that sliver of voters. If, if most people are there, why not just run to where they are in that big, you know, basket of votes in the middle? Because we, we and that is not, you know, it's still true that, that most of us find ourselves center left, center right, centrist. Yeah. So why not just run to the middle, compete with the best policies there? And whoever comes out the winner comes out the winner. And there was almost a pact about two decades ago made with political parties that started in Europe and that we're starting to see now in Canada, which is instead of trying to court the middle, they ran to the polls. They ran to either side of the spectrum. And what they ultimately did is force the middle to choose between the two to say, do I want to go hard left or hard right? Do I want to go in a certain direction and hold my nose and vote a certain way? And what that then allowed these political parties to do on the back end of being elected was it allowed them to implement an agenda that was either hard left or hard right. And you had a bunch of people who, frankly, after leaving the ballot box, hated the experience. They were like, <laughs> what the heck did I just have to do? Right. I don't love what I saw here, but there was really no choice for me. And so we've seen, and, and political parties, by the way, as a, as a point of strategy, do that so they can then, you know, have the base to implement, you know, the true Puritan version of what they believe, a hard left or hard right version of what they believe, rather than this compromise that they'd been doing for decades of running to the middle and now doing almost exact same thing as the other guys would do. We've seen a few proof points in the in the other direction. I think Aaron O'Toole running to the center this election was mm -hmm. one example of that. But his lack of success 
in the sense of being able to form government when Trudeau was hobbled, when Trudeau should have effectively lost his federal election, I think will reverse back to the course of what we just saw, which is parties that will sit in either poll and force voters to go to one side. So you ask why people feel politically homeless. That's perhaps a reason why is that our politics has taken advantage of the situation of implementing agendas in a much more Puritan sense. And rather than moving to the middle, it's asking voters to move to where they are, even for a transactional temporary point, i.e. a vote so that they can enact their, their agenda. I'm sorry that was if that was too much of a deep dive, but maybe that gives people a sense of if you yourself have been like, where, why don't I feel at home here? Maybe that's one of the reasons why. That's such an interesting, and I've heard some commentary, you summed it up, I think, really, really well, talking about, you know, Aaron O'Toole, like, well, what what went wrong, quote unquote, and whether you're for or against irrelevant, but going too much to the center and kind of softening some of those positions, so therefore not gaining essentially that liberal vote that maybe exists in that centrist view, but then abandoning your more extreme poll of of your actual base and them feeling like you're not part of, you don't have their agenda, you don't have their best interests in mind anymore. Well, that's the thing, right? And and there's still room, there's still opportunity to run a good, you know, um, center left, center right campaign. We've seen them be successful. We've seen them work. Um, but there's also this thing called the base that especially on the partisan political side, so many politicians are now so acutely aware of, of the impact of the base, what they can do to derail your uh, time in office to derail your time as leader of the party. Um, and I think we've got the best proof point in the country with Premier Jason Kenney, right right in front of our eyes in terms of what happens when you put together, glue together two parties that probably should not have been together in the PCs in the Wild Rose. And you've been able to do that from a mechanical and tactical political sense, but you haven't really thought through when a crisis compounds those fractures that have been glued together, uh, how do you govern without a unified vision for these two flanks that are fundamentally different from each other. And so, you know, if if Kenny were to do it all over again, he probably would have picked a lane and he probably would have picked uh, a lane that uh, appeased one group, left the other to the side, and then kind of forced one part of that group to say, screw it, I'm just going to hold my nose and vote for him anyways. And that would have given him a mandate. And people would have known, and those supporters would have known that they were being used as a transactional chess piece. But then that would have given Kenny, for example, in, in revisionist history form, an ability to govern in an ideological purity to the right further than he is right now, which to many would seem alarming, but I think that's what he would have chosen um, without the the constraints of, of a cabinet and a caucus that felt like they were sold at least one portion of it, a false bill of goods. And so it's a very strange dynamic in certain ways, but I think we're going to see, unfortunately, that that European mentality of the past 20 years template itself onto our political landscape uh, in Canada and perhaps in a meaningful way. Uh, it's probably here, but it's probably going to be here even more uh, in the coming, you know, years. Well, I, you you know, every party reserves the right to learn and try and go, well, that didn't work. And then you see these drastic shifts. So we're at the federal level. We've just come through a federal election that, you know, again, I said, made it, made a comment almost loosely. It felt like just an exercise in futility as we ended up almost, almost in the most part, exactly where we were beforehand. So maybe your views on how maybe that is or isn't true. Then we've got down, you mentioned provincial. Well, we don't have a provincial election. I've heard that's the election Albert, or Calgarians and Albertans want that we're not getting. And then we've got this municipal election coming down that has been, I would imagine, completely overshadowed by what's happening federally and how do people start to wrap their head around okay if this is what happened at this high level we go provincial 
holy heck, we got to go to the polls here in less than three weeks to vote for a mayoral and multiple other questions, which we'll talk about on this, uh, from the plebiscite perspective. How's that all funneling down to, quote unquote, what's going to happen in Calgary? Oh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, let's let's address one by one. So the federal election impact, um, the postmortem is still yet to be written, and there's never going to be a unified postmortem of exactly <laughs> what happened. But one of the storylines that I think is consistent across the board is that the final days, the end game for Aaron O'Toole were significantly and negatively impacted by Premier Jason Kenney here in Alberta. Not just for what the count was in terms of the Alberta seats, because yes, we have a few more liberal and ND seats uh, in our province, uh, and and at least one more liberal seat uh, in Calgary itself, Mm -hmm. uh, with Georgia Hall and Calgary Skyview sitting city councillor. Uh, But the impact that Kenny had to areas where Aaron O'Toole needed to win in Ontario, B.C. and Quebec, really rattling the conservative campaign in the end stages around not being able to answer uh, and perhaps the linkages being very explicit between Kenny and O'Toole. So there's going to be many narratives, several of which say that um, Jason Kenny caused or if not was a catalyzing force towards that conservative loss in the final days. I'm going to skip over provincial for a second and go right to municipal because I think the tie-in is exactly the same. Jason Kenney is going to be on the ballot municipally. It is going to happen. Uh, You are already seeing it. Candidates from both Edmonton and Calgary are not even running against each other. They're, they're, They're clawing over one another to say, I am the anti-Kenny candidate or the provincial government is doing X, Y, and Z to us. I'm the person to stand up against Jason Kenny and the UCP. I'm the one that should be chosen to be ahead, um, in front in line to battle the UCP, to battle not just their plebiscite questions, but to stand up to them to get a fair deal for our city, to get a fair deal for our place. So Jason Kenny was on the ballot in the federal election. He actually wasn't technically on the ballot, but hmm, metaphorically he was yeah. on the ballot. He's also going to be on the ballot in this municipal election. We've got this this very tight, less than 30-day runway, um, you know, as, as we sit here recording, where municipal candidates, because they don't wear a political jersey color, and especially if they're seeking relevancy right now, are going to try to use other markers for where they stand. And running against Jason Kenney, uh, an identified, uh, I hate to say in a certain sense, across the board, unpopular premier, even with conservatives, is a good way to get a head start. And so expect Jason Kenney once again to be a lever point, to be on the ballot, to have candidates either lean in or contrast with his style and and, and partisan color of leadership uh, in this federal election. We can get into it deeper, but to me, that's the linkage between the three, is that Kenny's got his turmoil going on right now on the provincial level, but he may have cost O'Toole the federal race, and he'll certainly make an appearance in this municipal election, not explicitly on the ballot, oh, but certainly implicitly on the ballot. That's an interesting perspective as you you kind of give me that filter. And now I think about the last year to two years of the current leadership in Calgary has always played off of what was happening at a provincial level. And sometimes 100%. very much felt like our current mayor has taken a very much like, yes, but we're going to manage our own selves and we're going to look at what's important to us. And never, never really disavowed, but never aligned directly with the current provincial leadership. Yeah, and I think in, in recent weeks, certainly disavowed with some very, yeah. <laughs> very harsh comments. Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that's the benefit of being a, a mayor that's that's leaving, both with Ivison and Nenshi. But even with one of the front 
frontrunners in the race, Jyoti Gondak, trying her best to ensure that any provincial mandate that comes out, um, she ensures that there's a point of contrast, that there's a, an ability to draw some daylight between her and the uh, provincial government. Um, is it a good strategy? We can discuss that. Uh, but she certainly knows that every time she speaks out against Jason Kenney, she's not just speaking out against Jason Kenney, she's speaking out against her principal opponent in this upcoming mayoral race, Jeremy Farkas, who hasn't necessarily endorsed Jason Kenney, but comes from the same political partisan right-wing cloth and she knows it's a two-for-one every time is there certain sort of limits uh to that strategy absolutely uh but it's a shorthand right because even as a sitting counselor she struggled to get name recognition this has really helped her to get name recognition at least with the political class uh to kind of once again try to recreate the constellation of her of the nenshi coalition while creating her own coalition of voters and supporters to head out to the ballot box for her uh coming up in october from your perspective of kind of being out there talking and interacting, is does the average voter look at it that way or is it more at a subconscious level? Like you've brought it up to very conscious now and kind of shined a light on it, which I really appreciate, which was my hope we were going to get into in this conversation. But is the average voter, the average everyday person, I say average as as including myself in that, are we conscious of that or is it more just this sub subtext that we're agitated about? You know, it's, it's interesting when we talk about how, how voters make decisions. Um, there's, there's always a, a thesis that campaign managers and campaign directors have about not just the electorate in terms of its mood and feeling, but a thesis on, on voters in general. And one of the things I like to talk about quite often is this concept of, what is an average everyday voter? And like some of the points that we have around that is we're more divided than ever before in the sense that we we don't consume the same information. Uh, the baseline level of facts that we have are different. We have fewer shared experience than we've ever had. Uh, one of the things I like to do is if I've got a room of folks, 20, 30 folks, I ask them, what are your top three news sources? And I guarantee you for most people, uh, the top three news sources, despite the values alignment in a group, are going to be different. We just highlight that we're consuming different things, different narratives, which impact and influence us. Uh, we're oversaturated. We overestimate how much of our circle is like the rest of the world. So we have like a very like large disconnect to, to everyone else. And then we also have this concept of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is at play. And I don't know if you've ever heard about this Dunning-Kruger effect. I have not. Um, please, please share. Okay, so is this effect... Well, I, I'm going to try to explain a graph uh, verbally. So this is going to go really well for me, Tyler. Um, <laughs> so it's a graph where on the x-axis, you've got um, your level of expertise. And on the y-axis, you got your level of confidence. And what you find, this study by Downing and Kruger, some 20 years old now, is that those with the least amount of expertise have the highest amount of confidence in a subject. And as you move down that x-axis, if you keep going right that confidence becomes lower because as you learn more, you kind of enter what they call the valley of despair where you realize, oh my goodness, I know nothing. And then as you keep learning more, you start once again climbing and, and reaching a plateau of sustainability. And what we've realized with our modern voter is not just that, you know, those with the least amount of expertise have the highest level of confidence, but that a second point, 
people in our 2021 world have a, a, a lesser desire to keep going down that x-axis, which means ignorance is bliss, is now actually a, a, a political tool. If you look at something like the PPC, they're taking advantage you know, on a federal level of those that you know might be anti-vax, might have gotten information, might have made up their own mind or decision based on some erroneous misinformation or disinformation, have no interest in learning more, know that you know that's 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 not their game and then you've got a political party that finds home for those people so we also know that is a common sort of voter thesis and the final thing i will add is around voter behavior and decision making most people think it's rational it is not the way human beings make decisions and i don't care how intelligent you are how logical you think you are the way you make a decision is you make a snap judgment emotionally and then you try to find the rational information to support that decision. You, every single one of us will say, you know, it's, it's like how I wrote papers in university, right? I would think of a thesis statement and then try to find the research that supported that thesis statement that I already believed because it was easier that way, right? Selectively sourcing. Every single one of us selectively sources. So the reason I took you down that long walk, Tyler, is just simply to take you back to, um, you know, is it the, the conscious or the subconscious? largely subconscious in many ways, right? Political campaigns know that the head and the heart are equal players, but it starts with the heart. How do you create an emotional connection and then provide the the background, the evidence, the logical reasoning so that someone can feel like they made a logical decision, but what they actually made was a snap judgment emotional decision that was then further scaffolded by logic. And that's very different than saying, I'm starting with the evidence, clear-eyed, uh, crystally, uh, versus saying emotions don't appeal to me. So you'll see that even with the brand positioning of these campaigns, they're all about emotion. You go to, for example, I mentioned Jyoti Gondak, the one of the front runners for the Maros campaign. You go to jyotigondak.ca you look at her site, the colors, the positioning, it, this is all an emotional play, right? You're a marketer, you know this, right? This is all an emotional play to be able to say, oh, I like her. There's something about her that I like. And if they have you there, if they have you, there's something about her that I like. There's very little that she can do wrong that will actually take you away from that, that territory. Some people might start with the, oh, I like her policies. You know what? I'm warming up to her. And then they'll get you at a certain point where it's emotionally hooked. And that emotional hook we know is so much more robust, so much stronger than a logical hook. And so it always takes me back to this phrase, which I love, uh, which a friend of mine uses quite often, but I think it applies so readily in politics, which is if you like someone, um, actually, actually, let me start with the other side. If you hate someone, they could come to you in a restaurant and take their entire, uh, you know, you know, pl uh, plate of food. Uh, sorry, sorry, let me let me let me try that one again. So if you like someone, they could take their entire plate of food and dump it over your head and you wouldn't mind. You'd be like, oh, look at that. That's fine. It's OK. Don't worry about it. it must have been an accident versus if you hate someone, you could look across the restaurant and be like, I hate how that person holds their fork. And it really comes down to that simple concept of emotional decision-making, right? We have, we've already said, I like this person. There's something about it. They're part of my tribe. The people that I know support them, whatever that decision-making cycle is. And campaigns are trying to get you to you know, come in in any different angle. 
Um, that subconscious decision making then takes over and then campaigns know exactly what to do with you, which is, you know, this is now your world as well, right? You find someone at, at a certain rung and you're constantly elevating their level of support, trying to say, hey, you like them? Can you do X activity? Can you do Y activity? Turning every supporter into a campaigner as many as they can by the end of it. So that's a very long answer for you around like the, the modern thesis of a voter. But yeah, absolutely. Head and heart. But every campaign, every good campaign knows that at least to start with their initial base of support, heart really matters because to create a campaign that that you can have, you know, the the Seth Godin style first hundred fans that are just loud, uh, unrelenting, disproportionate for you, they are just an army that 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 is uh, able to convert those around them in a significant manner. And you're seeing campaigns try to do that as well. Well, getting down to the nuts, that was that was very helpful, and I think it brings a lot of you know wealth and thinking to the idea of, no, I make very logical. Reality is we don't. We make emotional. We don't follow the scientific process. We don't try to break the idea. We just try to shore it up. As I'm now coming in as a rational as a rational individual and I say, okay, wow, there's 28. I go to the Calgary uh, city of Calgary website and I find there's 28 candidates on it. How is that? Because this is a big election for us in Calgary. There's, I think, over 50% of the seats are going to be changed over. We've got the plebiscite questions, which we'll definitely get to, which are at a provincial. I have talked to so many people. No one even knows about this plebiscite and what's coming. So that's interesting to me. But if we start with the 28 candidates, using some of what you said and maybe reversing it and saying, well, I want to choose to be a little more logical. I want to choose to maybe let my head play a part in this decision-making process. How would I even begin to start filtering those 28 candidates against yeah. the issues that matter in Calgary with all these other factors you've already laid out? So let's do a couple of things. The first thing for people should know is Mayor Nenshi's not running again. So there's the reason there's 28 candidates is that there is no incumbent. <coughs> so it means we're going to have a new mayor. Um, you know, whether like it or not, October 18th, we are going to have a new mayor. So um, the, out of that, I think there's a different there's there's a couple of different classes of folks that are running. The first class is is sitting existing city councillors. And there's three of those folks. You got Jyoti Gondek, um, councillor for one term, Jeremy Farkas, councillor for one term, Jeff Davison, councillor for one term. Jyoti Gondek came in as a counselor that on the ideological spectrum was probably a little bit right of center. She's running this campaign as perhaps the more left of center conscious vote. She's really leaning into the, the feminist sort of perspective. She's leaning into social justice, equity, uh, those big things while still having an eye on the economy. Jeremy Farkas, uh, reputationally uh, on council, was considered the no person. The 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 vote that on many uh, on many big things that unanimously were passed or should have been, he was a no. Um, always the most critical of, of city expenditures, of status quo, etc. Uh, fiscal conservative hawk is kind of how he's trying to present himself. Um, so he's that person that kind of takes the, the the right stripes in that sense uh, in, in in this political race. He's perhaps taking the terrain of your your center-right sort of, uh, center-right and even further than that right candidate. Jeff Davison, I think, has presented himself as a more business-friendly candidate, um, you know, a little bit calmer, uh, quieter than uh, than Farkas, a very similar voting record to the mayor, but more business-friendly. Kind of the champion of the arena deal is something that he's initially heralded and then is maybe wearing as an albatross around his neck to be determined in terms of if that's an asset or a liability. Currently seems like it's in the liability category. Um, so those are the, the class that if you're if you have tuned in at all, you've probably heard of. 
those three folks. And the race right now is between ring one, which I just mentioned, that class, and this ring around them, which is not the ulcerans, but the folks that are trying to get into the top three. And if I'm an observer right now, this is what I'm looking at. Can any of the folks I'm just about to mention pierce into the top three? Because the conversation thus far has been Gondek, Farkas, Davison. Gondak, Farkas, Davison, over and over and over again. And more specifically, in the as, as it's crystallized post-federal election, it's really been about Gondak versus Farkas. That seems to be the two-way race that is shaping up here. The most recent Think HQ poll, which comes out, which came out just this morning as we are recording, Tyler, says this is a two-way race, five-point point, five point difference between Farkas and uh, Gondak. Okay, I hadn't seen that yet. That's interesting. So, so that's that's the, the, the current narrative. But... As we know, if we go back to some history, back to 2010, Nahid Nenshi was definitely not in the top three at this point in time. No, he was not. (laughs) Right. So this is a guy who polled 1% in August and then came September, he he polled significantly higher and got into the top three. So here's the question I have. If if any of the following with Brad Field, who's a a center-right style candidate, business-friendly, perhaps occupies the same terrain as Jeff Davison, Jan Damery, or Jan Damery, I should say, a former executive at the YWCA, economist, who's trying to take the, the perhaps a more left-wing approach in this campaign, uh, even further left to Jyoti Gondek with her expertise in economics, kind of scaffolding her a bit on the right, uh, and or someone like Zane Novak. If any of those three... In, 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 in polling or momentum or metrics or analytics that, that they have lawn signs, doors knocked, et cetera, start emerging and have some momentum and crack the top three, uh, that could be really interesting. But for now, if you're looking at this race, you got ring one or class one, the counselors, class two, these folks that have good resumes, decent credibility, should probably be doing better than they actually are right now. Can they pierce into the top three? And if they can, with a bit of momentum and energy, uh, they might have something going for them. And then everyone else, I hate to say it, is kind of in the ulceran category. Uh, They're either doing this as a vanity exercise, they're doing this to get an issue on the ballot, they're doing this um, for, for a host of other reasons. But that's kind of the, the ring of, of supporters that I see. The first ring, the counselors, most likely one of them will be your next mayor. Ring two, these really talented people that are just not piercing through just yet. Many reasons for that. COVID has been a big factor. Throw in a 36-day federal election where many of these campaigns were saying, okay, and then we're going to peak in late August and then early season. No, not going to happen. You're clouded over by a federal election. So now, as everyone enters this 100-meter sprint, uh, the question is, does the two-way race between Farkas and Gondak still hold? Um, and does this ultimately present two additional variables? Variable number one, does anyone in that second class of, of, of contenders pierce in and, 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 and now come in third to give folks a sense of viability that, okay, maybe it's not a two-way race. Maybe these one of these people surging into this class, maybe even passing Davison, has got a bit of momentum and viability by their side. And if that happens, many will say, oh, this is the Nenshi story all over again. Do I see that happening? No, uh, because the third point that I wanted to make here is is that the the runway is so limited, right? We are sitting here as we record on uh, two days after the federal election. That leaves us with less than a month before people are voting on election day, Uh, which means that if you are sitting at 2% in the polls right now and you don't get to wear a party color in the sense that there's no shorthand for you in many ways, it's not like you could be like, oh, the conservative candidate. No, it's very hard. It's on your name. It's on your name and it's on your dime, which means that, you know, the, 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 
the money is very different in this election with no union or corporate donations. So those $5,000 checks that were just being cut multi-ways by corporations, it's not the same out there for these campaigns, especially if you're in that second ring of supporters. The money dries up, your viability goes down, you're, you're out of the race. So for me, that's a very long-winded way, Tyler, to kind of put out the terrain of the three classes, the counselors, the second ring on the outside, and the also rants. Aside from the, the obvious popularity contest and just visibility that you talked about, which I like this person, or I don't, and I, I feel, I have a feeling, is there any issues that are really showing up? You, you brought the, the, the new arena as one that was either, either, you know, either, either a weight, an anchor or, or an elevator. Is there any other issues on the table, the green line, police uh, funding, like all of the issues, if you go down and you pull up the sites and they give you the list of kind of what matters to Calgarians, taxes, downtown vacancy mm-hmm, rate, mm-hmm. is there anything there that would allow some of these candidates, like are people really looking for who cares about my issue or is it still more that popularity contest? And I'm not trying to minimize it, but that's what I heard. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of both. Name recognition really matters when you don't get to wear a partisan jersey color. So that's always going to be part of how people vote. Policies are one of the things that people vote for, but it's all policy to me is really a shorthand for brand. You know, back in 2010, when Nahid had put out a dozen policies for his mayoral election, each one of them with a five page PDF, um, that was really to create and construct and solidify a true brand uh, presence that said, this is the smartest guy. Like if you want the smartest person, it's this guy. Like he's thought about these things. He's got these detailed PDFs. Are you going to read them? You probably not. But if you are worried about like the most intellectual approach to how we do this, that's your candidate. And so right now I look at policies and priorities as a bit of that. And so for Jyoti Gondek, her policies and priorities about every citizen of Calgary is an investor, a very sort of business friendly term. But then she's got demand, fairness and respect, of course, another sort of right wing business friendly term. And then her final two policies are about equity, social justice, leadership. So she's, as you could just see with those words, trying to balance her her time in real estate uh, with, with deep expertise in finance and investor relations with a more social equity, justice, fairness for everyone, you know, an, an equitable access. And then if you look at, at, at Farkas, a much more right-wing candidate, economic growth, fiscal responsibility, so spending, but then he's also got better city services. Uh, to him, better probably doesn't mean more, it means more efficient, and then building the Calgary of the 21st century. So in terms of the big issues, like, you know, I think the ones that that I think top of mind for, for voters, and I don't have polling evidence of this, but we certainly see it. Number one, how do we fill up the towers again? What's our downtown strategy? How do we bring jobs back to the fore? Why are my taxes going up? Uh, and how do we actually fundamentally change the, the downtown property tax hole? Like this is a huge, massive problem that we need to deal with head on, especially with the vacancies that we have, especially catalyzed by COVID now resulting in remote work. So the the, the upside of those spaces being, being taken on online, and I'm sure you've had discussions with others who are much more intimately knowledgeable about what the future of work will look like in the city, especially a city that's got a very hollowed out downtown to be crass, right? Um, but then the other sort of issues outside looking in that could be important, housing, like we're we're despite the fact that we've had a slump in our housing prices, access to housing, rental housing, homelessness, those issues. That was a big, big, big story on the federal scene in the early days. Every major party with the housing platform, housing will be important. Climate and the city's role in climate, I think, is is an increasingly popular thing for politicians to do and address. And then the other big one is going to be about infrastructure, right? Green line, 
arena, etc. Farkas was against both. Gondek was was for one against the other. So like you're going to see that kind of present itself as issues to say who's the infrastructure person who really wants to build and who wants to build for whom. One of the you know as I mentioned for Davison who's who's currently polling in third. Uh, if you believe the the most recent Think HQ polling, um, you know he was pro arena, but the arena kind of soured a lot of people on on his prospects because of the expenditure, the alternatives, etc. It's been split in a, in a weird way, the arena question. So there's a lot of questions on the table. Uh, I'd say that the two front runners are dealing with those questions, or at least have, uh, you know, none of them have kind of given deep dive policy responses to them. They've kind of listed them as priorities because you have to also understand, and maybe we'll get into this, mayor in a council setting is just a glorified meeting chair, right? Because it's, you have one vote, you can whip those votes and you've got access to resources that the other councillors don't have to try to get to eight every single time on things you care about that are on your agenda. But at the end of the day, you're one vote. So you're not seeing deep dive sort of policy implements from each of these because they all know that whatever they end up saying will have to be a process of compromise with the other uh, counselors that they have to deal with to try to get to eight votes every single time on an issue. And without the the slates being run, so to speak, there's a, there's a, there's a very good chance that we end up in a scenario that Jyoti Gondek has a conservative council and can, and has to compromise on a lot of her points on climate, infrastructure, social equity, uh, services. There's also a chance that Jeremy Farkas ends up with a progressive council. And so they don't allow his spending cuts or, uh, you know, dec- tax decreases, et cetera, in certain cases. So you're going to have these balancing forces that are council and you have a largely going to have a net new council, fresh faces that show up because you only have a handful of councillors putting their name on the ballot again, primarily as a result of the fact that three of them are running for mayor, but several have kind of decided to, to move on as well. It's so interesting, and I think it's really valuable when you think about the perspective of this municipal government versus even what we're talking about federally or provincially, where you've got a group of people allegedly all towing the same line, where this is yeah. not, this is a coming together of individuals. I love what you said, just because one individual has a certain agenda, they've still got to work with a group and they still have one seat at the table. It's, it's, easy to, it's easier to forget that. For me. And some mayors have been better than others in being able to say, this is my agenda. This is what I'm going to get done. I don't care. They do the horse training, right? They, they do yeah, they the, make it the work, scenes, yeah. the scenes from the West wing where they've got the names of the other counselors on a whiteboard. And they're <laughs> saying, what does this counselor need in order to vote for my thing? So that this West LRT, for example, and I'm referring to Bronconi here can happen, right? What does this counselor need? What do you need? So some are like that. Others are more like, let the process dictate the outcome. Let's show up to the floor. Let's have a hearty debate and wherever it lands, it lands. Uh, and I'm fine with that because that's the true function of democracy. So you're going to see different styles here too, with whoever gets elected based on how vigorous uh, they are with implementing their agenda and at what political trade-off are they willing to make in order to do that uh, versus others who are much more process-oriented and say, no, 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 there's a reason why we're 15 distinct individuals. They want us to work together. Let's see what the compromise looks like as we work together. So it'll be fascinating to see not just uh, what the agendas are uh, based on who gets elected, uh, but how uh, whoever is elected as mayor uses the bully pulpit to push their agenda and how assertively and quickly they want those things done. 
But as, as a voter sitting here 30 days out, looking for those signals that I look for of what it is about that candidate I like, what you just talked about was very hard to, without doing some research of like, what is their ability to get things done? How are they as a quote unquote leader when it comes to influence and moving a group of people around them versus just getting excited about their rhetoric or the words that they use or the color scheme on their website, which I, you know, as a marketer, we can't overlook that we're all being influenced at, at all, at all 100%. points. Yeah. hundred percent. And I, and I think if I can add to that point, right? Like I think the two front runners have their own distinct challenges. You got Jyoti Gondek, who many people say is, is, is an incredibly intelligent, bright individual uh, who, who knows policy, uh, but perhaps is maybe not the most uh, team oriented person. And then you've got, you know, Farkas, who's in many ways um, been the no person on council. So how do you go from being the no person to leading when your job <laughs> is to get things done, get things done? So it's, it's very interesting. They've got their own distinct challenges. You got Davison, if he should be successful, you know, his challenge is picking a lane. Who are you, right? Are you just blowing where the wind is? Uh, like, what do you believe? Like, and, and to have a mayor that, that might be nice, that might be palatable, but at the end of the day, unpredictable every single time that they show up for a vote or present their agenda is perhaps not what voters might be looking for too, right? So do, do, how do these candidates in the, in the upcoming days kind of you know paper over or solidify some of their weaknesses and then double down on their strengths, right? They all have incredible strengths. Gondek, incredibly smart, good campaign, is resonating with a distinct audience um, that overlaps the Nenshi Coalition the strongest. Not perfectly, but the strongest. Farkas, hard worker, like incredible, comes from an interesting socioeconomic background, low income background, East Calgary resonates with a lot of like the immigrant working class group. Um, and when you meet him in person, extremely palatable, nice guy, not the monster, quote unquote, that the progressive tried to paint him as, as this conservative is going to slash and burn things. And then Davison, right? Probably the li- nicest, most likable guy, extremely reasonable. Uh, for many, he just kind of seems as, as you know, what you think of, of, of a mayor in terms of regular scheduled programming, like a lot of people have an appetite for that. So great strengths that they have. How do they double down on them? And then how do they paper over some of the weaknesses that I think many are spotting in their candidacies, which maybe a telegraph to how they run the job of, of being the next mayor of the city. So much, so much opportunity for research. And to your point, how do we go a little farther down the X axis? I, I, I really like that. I've got that sketched out. I, I will use that in a conversation later today. Again, that's an excellent, uh, I've heard it before because I didn't know the name, the, the Dunning Kruger. Hey, curious, I'm walking up to the, I'm walking up to the polling station. I go behind my little, uh, privacy screen and I, and I run into some plebiscite questions. Yeah. that I maybe had no idea I was going to get asked before I even showed up. So maybe a little like, where's this plebiscite? Like, again, I think we've all heard the word. Most of us don't know what it means. I say, I say most of us. I'm being ignorant and I've talked to a lot of people and I say it to them and they're like, well, what? Wait, am I going to have a chance to to do some research before I get asked these questions? What's going on there? And, you know, is that is that going to play a big part in this people walking up to the poll and feeling maybe potentially overwhelmed by these, these questions? Yeah, so there's a couple of them instituted by the federal government. One is on equalization, uh, by the provincial government, sorry. One's on equalization. Uh, the referendum question, I'm going to read it to you and see if it makes sense to you. Um, should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act of 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalizations payments be removed from the Constitution? If yet you're a yes vote means that Alberta are calling upon the federal government and other provinces to enter into discussion on a potential amendment. A no vote means that Alberta's Albertans are not calling upon the federal government and other provinces to enter into a discussion. It's crazy. 
I mean, at the end of the day, this particular question is nuts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's, that was uh, my, I looked it up and I was like, it's, I need, it's, I need it's, so okay, much so more here, information to answer this question. <laughs> here's the thing. Number one, you answering yes or no has no impact whatsoever on the outcome. <laughs> There's no unanimous municipal plebiscite question that fundamentally changes the constitution. This is a political play by the premier to try to galvanize voters that have been fired up on equalization to show up to the polls. And the hope is that if they show up to the polls for this question, they they might also support the associated conservative candidate for councillor and for mayor. So this question really means nothing uh, in a broader sense uh, for in terms of impact. I'm curious to see the results because once again, as I said earlier, Tyler, Jason Kenney's on the ballot. Here's one way of ensuring that Jason Kenney, who's on the ballot, there's other ways by voting for a candidate who runs against Jason Kenney actively, et cetera. But here's a very direct way to vote against Jason Kenney. And then the other one we're going to see is around daylight savings time, a referendum question on, do you want Alberta to adopt a year round daylight savings time, which is at summer hours, eliminating the change to the need to change our clocks twice a year. This one's interesting. I don't know why it's just, it's a, re- a plebiscite question when it could have just been done as a piece of legislation that seems to be popular, but I'm once again, very curious to see um, on that one. This one, I think people need less research for in a sense, but there is some research to be done around like why it's a good idea, the harmonization of the time clock, what does it do, economic impacts, there are a few. So I would research this question a bit, um, but it seems like one, at least in polling, is, is quite popular with Albertans, and, and I would be surprised if it doesn't go ahead. Is there anything going on, like aside from having some conversations with people like yourself and kind of forcing myself into like what's going on, what's coming up, let's be prepared. I haven't really seen this floating around anywhere. Like, is this something like, I feel a lot of people are going to be surprised when they get asked this oh, question. 100%. Day yeah. yeah. I think, first of all, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised that they're like, wait, what election? There's a municipal election now? I thought we just had <laughs> yeah, an let, election. Let's start at the top oh. of the level. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So you're going to start there, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to like deride people for, for not being knowledgeable, but most of us have things to do, things going on. We don't clue into this. So first of all, you, another election. Okay. Um, that secondly, okay. And most people, you know, when you show up to the ballots in a municipal election are always surprised, always surprised that they get asked, do you want a ballot for counselor? Uh, okay, sure. Yeah. I, I was here to vote for mayor, but counselor. And then they're incredibly surprised Tyler when they're like, do you want a ballot for school board trustee? They're like school, what, what's going on? So then they're like, they, they ended up like, I was just here to vote for Nihad Netshir. I just showed up here to, uh, that, that Jeremy Farkas or that Jyoti Gondak was interesting. <laughs> and then they're handed three ballots now five Right. So like people are always surprised that there's a school board trustee race that's going on. Now they're going to be surprised that there's a that there's a plebiscite question, uh, multiple of those. So, yeah, absolutely. It's going to catch people off guard uh, because here's the other thing. There's not been any campaigns for or against. Right. You were, I was expecting that, like, there'd be big campaigns for this for the, at least the equalization one, because people were viewing this as a way to either send a message to Kenny or to, you know, to try to galvanize your supporters if you're conservative. But at least from what I can see, there have been no concerted third party efforts to push the vote one way or the other on these two files. So I feel like the government just kind of set it and forget it because they've frankly got other things to worry about. The provincial government, I mean, uh, at this moment in time with the fourth wave, et cetera, uh, and with their own internal turmoil politically. So, yeah, it's very strange because like you, I think most people are going to be confused but I think even more people are going to be confused because neither of these questions have had any sort of lobbying or advocacy or campaigning around them at all. 
Yeah, you've got the the daily savings times. Every year when we do it, there's always this frustration because it impacts right. people in the moment. But aside from that, I think we 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 have a very we're very skilled at just adapting to our new world, right? We we complain Absolutely. about it for a couple of days. We're tired. We're not. You know, you get an hour of sleep, you lose an hour of sleep. Uh, and the other one, and so just to be clear, these are going to be physically like, I'm going to have five different ballots. It, it like, I'm going to go in with a stack a of ballots. <laughs> You're definitely going to have mayor, counselor, school board trustee. You can reject those. I think you also have the opportunity to reject these ballots. But yes, these are all individual ballots that you'll be given. Oh, this is all of a sudden becoming an overwhelming. Hey, I haven't seen the numbers. How was voter turnout in the federal election? Like, were people active? And oh, did, did, we get, did we get people out? That's a great question. I don't know myself. Um, I was going to ch- take a look at this later today. I'm just going to try to do a bit of, of, of researching. Sure. Right now. Well, here, while you're, least, while you're introducing that, I'm going to throw the other question on, sure. on water fluoridation. You know, are you in favor of reintroducing fluoridation of the yes. municipal water supply choice? Yes or no. And that's on the munis- that's at the municipal level. But that's another question that I think could yeah. be polarizing for the people that are invested in it. Otherwise, I, I, I don't know and I don't care might be the, an answer to that for a lot of people. A lot of people might not take the ballot. This one is a municipal question, not dictated to us by the province. And this one you are seeing a bit of campaigning on. Like okay. you're seeing a bit of like fluoride yes, fluoride no campaigns. Mm-hmm. But once again, not loud enough to, to kind of um, uh, create any sort of momentum. Once again, I think people will be surprised with all of those questions. Fluoridation, as people might know, was removed from from the water supply. The the call is to add it back in, especially with uh, some of the the longitudinal health outcomes that they have seen around dental health. Otherwise, uh, with fluoridation, um, so uh, you know, I think there's a there's a strong scientific constellation and evidence for the yes vote. We'll see if that if that shows up and if if that translates to people when they when they do their research, uh, if they do their research, uh, or if it's to our earlier conversation, impulsive. I guess yes is the answer, emotional answer uh, when they when they tick off one of these choices. It seems like, and I'm just looking back on our voter turnout. Um, this is a, uh, that it was just hovering under sixty percent. Okay. Um, so just under 60%, it might have increased with the, the overall counts on mail-in, but, uh, they're just saying the, the, that's lower than the 2019 election turnout, which, uh, was 67%. So that 60%, which is 58, nine, uh, will probably increase quite a bit to a couple points when okay. all said and done, but I don't think it will hit the 67% that we saw. So not terrible. Like we've seen municipal elections that have been significantly lower. I'm really curious about this municipal election. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is, it's a change election in the sense that, you know, people aren't demanding change, but you're going to get a new mayor. So that will galvanize people to the polls. You have a bunch of important, but not so important plebiscite questions. Maybe that has an import. And then you've got like new counselors across the city, like in the majority of uh, wards will have new counselors. So maybe they're going to be doing extra hard work to galvanize their supporters, et cetera. Um, so I, it's unpredictable to me in terms of what we might hit in terms of, uh, of voter turnout this election, but uh, it'll be fascinating to see for for the municipal side. Well, and all the extenuate, that's always curious, like just fatigue. Oh, didn't, didn't I just vote oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago? That's real. And of course now COVID and people, you know, by then we'll maybe have sorted out what I can or can't do based on my status and my views of the Absolutely. world. So many extenuating factors. So a little bit, you know, since we are the target audience, the universal proverbial we here in Alberta and in, in Calgary, what are we going to expect to see? This is a 30 day sprint. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm sensing for, for these candidates. Are we going to have people knocking on our doors, lining up at our sidewalk for the next candidate to walk up? Like what, what can we expect to be aware of the coming our way over the next 30 days? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the pandemic fourth wave sort of stuff has kind of restricted some of the outdoor activities mm, expect course. to be bombarded with advertising, Facebook, YouTube, pre-roll, et cetera. Um, there's probably going to be one or two debates. Expect the local media, despite it being eroded, to turn to their turn their attention now very quickly to this race because they have they have perhaps been dithering themselves on uncovering this race. And frankly, it's really hard to cover a 30 person mayoral race. But as it crystallizes, the names that I've given you of the top three in the second ring of supporters, Expect those names to be heard way more often in our media and then expect the ground game. Expect lawn signs to be present everywhere. Expect for your neighbors and friends to take lawn signs. I think private lawn signs are one of the secret weapons of political campaigns because they indicate your support and what's socially acceptable to a circle that you have disproportionate influence over your friends, well, it, your family, it's, it's your neighbors. It's a powerful right? signal. It's a powerful 100%, signal. Next right? to so, your face, your Facebook platform or your Facebook absolutely, feed. <laughs> absolutely, right? You're, you're broadcasting your intent and what also you believe to be socially acceptable, which paves the way for others. Because when we talk about, and this is maybe a disparaging term, but low information voters, they often make their decision based on not the policy points, maybe the colors, maybe the the fact that I like Tyler. And if he's voting this way for this candidate and he's put a lawn sign out, okay, I guess that's good enough for me. If I like you and you're going this way, that's good enough for me. And that is powerful sort of stuff, that transitive sort of property. I mean, it's like influencer culture and mini influencer culture. Um, I was just going to say, campaigns are the OG. They're the OG of that, right? Like they literally are trying to take any person who is supportive and say, put a lawn sign here because it's a signal to your neighbors that you're an influencer to them, whether you know it or not. And even subconsciously as they're like, oh shit, it's today voting day. They're going to be like, who did? Okay. Yeah. The Nenshi. Right. Fine. Right. Or was it Gondak? Oh, there's a G1 gone. Okay. Right. Like it sometimes is as simple as that. So I think there's campaigns know that they're going to tool around that. And the final thing I'll add is uh, if campaigns do their job correctly, you will see this final 100 day, uh, hundred sort of yard sprint, so to speak, uh, this less than 30 day, 100 meter sprint to be uh, very much about getting their supporters to be loud. So you you might expect friends and family, people in your circle more than ever before, because you can't just do it all with advertising. Money will dry up for some of these campaigns and the mm-hmm. asset that they have are those 100 fans, the extrapolation of the loudest people that are disproportionately supportive. Expect them to reach out more often, get louder about their support. So, you know, I don't think we'll be inundated as much as we are with the federal election because it's not going to be on the media all the time. Media locally has eroded. The budgets are smaller, but expect activity and expect enthusiasm to increase at least within one circle and on one's lawn to to really culminate in crescendo with the vote that we have coming up in late October. I really appreciate your perspective. What I'm taking away is, you know, be, be aware of all the different ways that you're influenced and, you know, get interested because the second you put a little attention to something, the layers start to peel back. But I think also, you know, being a skilled consumer, which is really what we're talking about here, it feels like a conversation about marketing and consumerism in terms of how we're influenced and, you know, the, the illusion of independent choice sometimes. And you realize all those small little, little dots led you to believe a certain thing, being critical around that and understanding why you got there or how you got there, which is easier said than done. I appreciate. But I, I, my, my, what I heard from taking away from you is the mindfulness required to be an engaged voter. And it's no easy task because we're busy and it's noisy and we're getting led in different directions all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I also wouldn't like look down upon the more emotional approach, right? We are human at the end of the day. And if someone makes an emotional connection with you and they have then presented 
the, 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 the evidence that, that you like, that's great. Like, and, and I, I'd say what I'd say is, you know, um, municipal politics, especially allows for texture that federal and provincial politics doesn't, you know, people aren't trained seals. Your counselor will not be a trained seal. They will be responsive to you. Uh, while they might have an ideology that they believe in, uh, you know, potholes are not a left or right issue. Transit <laughs> is generally not a left or right issue, right? Uh, snow shoveling uh, is generally not a left or right issue. Sure, some of the downstream effects and the choices we make are, but you know, understand that there's there's nuance, there's character, there's passion, and often those things that may not matter on a provincial level because what's going to end up happening? This person just gets rolled up into a color and they vote the certain way. Those things I think do matter on a municipal level. Like if you genuinely like someone. Like I would use that as a sign as, as one of the pieces of evidence in terms of why you vote for them in municipal politics, because their approachability, their responsiveness, their ability to, to talk to you and be reasonable. That is municipal politics. It is like on the ground stuff, right? Yeah. There's some big decisions on property tax, et cetera, but it's like, does this person represent the heart of my community? What I care about values aligned, approachable and nice enough, reasonable, those are the qualities. They may sound like low bars, but in fact, municipal politics is about that frontline engagement tactical stuff that really is the day-to-day services we get. Most of those are not left-right decisions. Most of those are about good people that can listen and be responsive to those emerging needs. And so I, I, you know, I would do the research, but I'd also, if you have a chance to meet the candidates and get a feel for them, I think it's really important because I think their passion, their lived experience, their sort of, you know, um, everyday lives do matter in terms of what they're able to do and how they're able to respond in municipal politics more so than any other order of government that we have in this country. I appreciate you laying out the differences and, and, and embrace, embrace that. Like these are your neighbors. These are like people it's Calgary. You've talked to enough people. You'll have someone in your circle who knows some of these individuals personally. Cause that is also how oh, our town 100%. works. Exactly. Yeah. Zane, thank you so much for your, well, your perspective, your thoughts, clearly an area of passion and, and, and drive for you in terms of uh, your energy was coming through the mic. I, I loved it. And it gave certainly me some perspective to look at this. And I hope from an audience perspective, gave us just a little few more layers to think about. And, you know, maybe just, maybe this is just our opportunity to go, oh, okay, there's a municipal election. I'm going to start thinking about it. Yeah. Here's a, here's a great starting spot. So, Hey, what's the best way people want to hear more? You know, I know you're, you've got yourself out there in the, in the, in the universe of communications. What's the best way for people to tune into you? Uh, just on Twitter at Zane Velji. And then if you're into the strategy of politics, provincially, federally, and occasionally municipally uh, the strategist podcast, you can look that up wherever you find podcasts, but uh, thank you for having me. And we're in for a very exciting uh, next T minus less than 30 days here. <laughs> The, the countdown is on. Thank you, Zane. Really enjoyed our chat. Appreciate it.